every experience is a learning experience, including LSD. There's no such thing as a flashback, Danny. You need to get a job so that you can curb this free-form anxiety of yours. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's Freeform! 88.3 Anya Tosta! Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And uh, Jim Dwyer here, ready to eat a little crow about the weather. Oh, yeah. It was just, we were joking around that I was listening to Jim's show the other night when he said, oh, the Weather Channel, they're full of blank. Uh, just go about your business. And I thought, uh, I think this one is uh, is going to hit us. And it sure yeah. did. That was, was a doozy. I was wrong, and uh, it's nice to get the snow. It's nice to have a snow day for the uh, teachers and students. And uh, I guess uh, my complaint was really about the way in which, uh, like any facet of the entertainment industry, news, including weather news, uh, has to be hyped constantly. Yeah, that's true. Um, they they do overpredict uh, snow here in Michigan frequently. And, of course, I've always said that this is more of a function of they'd rather – be wrong on that side of overpredicting than underpredicting because right. then people would be really angry if they yeah hardships could ensue. Oh yeah, you'll get a couple of inches and you end up getting nine, ten inches, whatever right. people got in various parts of southeast Michigan. I must say, I was driving a cab that night, and yeah, I think it was the second worst snowstorm I've seen. Certainly, as a cab driver, uh, since I've lived in Ann Arbor these many, many years, so it, it was uh, serious and. Boy, at 4.30 in the morning, between 4 and 5, there were, it was white out. It was unbelievable. It. You couldn't see a stop sign until you got within 10 feet. Because not only was there a 30 mile an hour wind, right. but there was blowing uh, drifts and, and the snow was just coming down. It was unbelievable. And in fact, that... Uh, that Cleveland Browns game yesterday. I don't know if you saw any pictures oh, that, of that. Yeah, I don't usually watch football, but the that was highlights great. from that game were remarkable to see. I wish I'd seen yeah, the game yeah. just for the uh, I, bizarre spectacle. I really should have abandoned my house. I was listening to it on the radio, uh, and they were occasionally showing some highlights. But I, That's I the should snowiest have, football game I've ever seen. It reminded me of being a kid again. Uh, I grew up in, uh, in Ohio and was a Browns fan as a kid, and I used to love playing football in four or five inches of snow because you can just go out there. Your footing's kind of bad. You can tackle people. Nobody ever gets hurt. Right. And it's just loads of fun. And... Uh, one of the reasons I think I always liked the Browns as a kid was they always had the muddiest field. It was by the end of the game, their their white uniforms were completely brown. So calling them the Cleveland Browns was was perfectly was appropriate. Perfectly appropriate, and uh, I, I don't know. I w one of the things that mystifies me about the Detroit Lions, just to get on a brief tangent on this, the Bears play outside, the Packers play outside, and the Browns play outside, and it's certainly as bad in those cities in the winter, if not worse, than Detroit. There weren't any empty seats in Cleveland. Those fans yeah. came out there. They love that home field advantage, and Detroit's got its own home field advantage, but if you look at the history of the Lions since they moved indoors, 
I don't know what their road record is, but it is atrocious. They play well at home, indoors, in the nice, comfy confines of first the Silver Dome and now Ford Field, which is a beautiful uh, facility. But uh, I think Detroit would behoove themselves as an organization if they went back to the outdoor football. It's the frozen tundra of Green Bay, baby. (laughs) It's Cleveland Brown Stadium. Uh, And, of course, it was appropriate that Cleveland was playing Buffalo because Buffalo— Gets that kind of weather, too. Yeah, if you can't handle snow in Buffalo, you you got no business being there. But not the same field. Well, anyway, we digress. It's difficult to talk about global warming on a weekend as we've just witnessed. Uh, because, that, of course, what was fascinating to me about that the storm was how identical it really was to the storm the previous week. It was just mm-hmm. a little colder, but it was the same trajectory. It was this stationary high that's causing the drought in the southeast that's pushing tropical air up through that Oklahoma, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and then into the New England area. And it was almost identical trajectory of precipitation, massive, uh, massive uh, quantities of, of humid air there. So global weirdness is the rule of the day. And yeah. it's Appropriate that there was an international conference in Bali, Indonesia, on the subject. And well, thank goodness for the the representative Papua New Guinea that uh, chastised America for dragging its feet and then pretty much saying, "Get out of the way." Yeah, and America had to eat some crow and do some backsliding. And needless to say, there won't be any uh, profound changes in the next year under the the, the remaining. Um, I've got this little device here. 399 days. <laughs> I've seen those. <laughs> uh, 399 days, them. five hours, and two minutes of uh, the Bush administration. Indeed. Well, he's he's basically called his own environmental, you know, group. Yeah. He's not going to really participate in the uh, international proceedings being led by the UN and so forth. Um, wants to kind of call the shots on his own terms. The uh, U.S. negotiator on climate has said, well, no, we, we're not going to agree to any hard and fast carbon exchange rules or anything. Um, troubling indeed are you know recent accounts that Greenland's ice sheet melted nearly 19 billion tons more than the previous high mark. Um, these are all recent developments. At this rate, the Arctic Ocean could be nearly ice-free by the end of summer 2012, according to a NASA climate scientist. Um, of course, the Arctic is often cited. The uh, article here by Seth Pornstein uh, continues. Uh, the Arctic is often cited as the canary in the coal mine for climate warming. Now, as a sign of climate warming, the canary has died. And it's time to start getting out of the coal mines. And the Greenland ice is significant because it, of course, uh, does contribute to actual rising sea levels. Mm -hmm. And the rising sea levels are beginning to uh, actually um, manifest themselves in certain areas. And even John McCain, of all people, who on this issue is a maverick within the Republican Mm -hmm. Party, um, acknowledged in the recent debate. He was the only one to raise his hand on the global warming question and pointed out that uh, parts of Um, native populations in Alaska are beginning to suffer 
um, dislocation mm-hmm. as a result of the rising sea. So there's uh, finally some clear-cut um, evidence of this. Satellite photos, by the way, confirm this completely. They have documented proof of uh, melting of the Greenland ice. There actually was a very interesting map showing the increase in precipitation in the United States uh, in recent uh, decades, um, basically a 50-year pattern showing how much wetter, particularly the northern section of the United States, uh, has been. And there were very few places that were drier. Uh, Ironically, one of the spots that was a little drier was Florida, which, uh, of course, is... uh, Parts of Florida are experiencing a drought this year, where the, the real the real center of that drought is in Atlanta and Georgia. But yeah, one of the more interesting uh, subjects on this uh, global warming trend that I brought in an old clipping shows a map of the United States comparing 1990 to 2006 regarding the migration of plants, fauna, as the as feeling warmth subtropical plants moved north and you can see from the map you know that the areas most affected uh, interestingly are the uh, are Florida <laughs> and the the sort of the n- northern Great Plains um, places like Minnesota North Dakota and uh, Montana are considerably warmer and as the article points out there are palm trees in Knoxville, and there are camellias in Pennsylvania. So this is uh, an article that actually focuses on the gardening population of America. Interesting to note, by the way, that the uh, Americans spend 34 estimated uh, spend about 34 billion dollars a year, according to the National Gardening Association, whoever they may be. Maybe they made a guest appearance in the. Manchurian Candidate, was that the movie? <laughs> oh, yes, the Tea Party. <laughs> the Tea Party. We don't know, but, um, you know, the, 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 the evidence is clear-cut. You know, Al Gore got his Nobel Prize recently and delivered a speech at uh, the climate uh, summit mm-hmm. there in Bali. Good for Al Gore. Uh, he's been a bonehead on so many things, but on this one he's right on the money. And, in fact, his... Uh, original book that he wrote before he actually was a VP, uh, Earth in the Balance, is uh, outstanding. Prescience on his part. Uh, of course, the global warming challenge, uh, and this is another emissions regarding greenhouse gases. I'll just read this from another. Um, this is dated May 5th of uh, the New York Times, just in their editorial page. They note that the greenhouse gases have risen 70% since 1970 and could nearly double from current levels by 2030 if nothing is done. And then they go into the uh, uh, coal-fired plants and all that stuff. Good to see that there's some discussion, open discussion here in Michigan about getting actively involved in wind turbine production. Get the manufacturing jobs. Uh, We've seen plenty of wind in the last month. Well, that, you yeah. know, would reduce greenhouse gases. And when people complain, as there have been, you know, whenever the opportunity to establish uh, wind farms, as they're called, uh, often complaints are raised that it destroys property values because it's an eyesore, or uh, in some cases, 
uh, even uh, endangers birds which may uh, migrate as flocks through that area that's you know a separate matter but as far as reducing the value of, of property because of a visual you know dislike for the uh, the windmills themselves it's pretty amazing to me that people are willing to call something that they can see unacceptable but the uh, invisible toxins that we breathe as a result of the you know carbon-based fuel um, economy driving substances that we've been uh, flourishing on for so many decades these are airborne pollutants that are invisible and of course they're not an eyesore but they are responsible for huge numbers of uh, health problems mm -hmm. and environmental uh, degradation uh, you might not like the look of a windmill, but it's not going to cause cancer, and it's not going to uh, leave toxic residue in the soil or in the, uh, you know, eggs of your own children. And personally, it's far more elegant than a cell phone tower. Uh, there don't yeah. seem to be any objections to the fact that those things are popping up everywhere, being erected uh, everywhere, or how it diminishes uh, property value. Right. Um, it's not that wind is, is the solution, it's more that wind is an augmentation. Right. And this, by the way, is one very clear-cut um, difference uh, in the presidential parties. Uh, the Democrats, uh, and we had the two final debates in Iowa this past week that I may briefly comment on, they were, they were Geritol moments for... <laughs> it, was, it was slow going there, but uh, I thought because of the style of the questions that the Democrats, certainly on the policy issues, uh, seemed much more on the ball, much more in tune with reality, much more up to date. But when you start hearing virtually every candidate, the, 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 they excluded uh, Gravel and Kucinich in the, in the, in the last uh, debate, but uh, every candidate literally talking about a Manhattan project regarding renewable energy, mm. that's the direction where we need to be going, not well, this... Yeah, fossil fuels uh, subsidy program. It's unbelievable well, that they're continuing to give oil companies money when they're making, I don't know what Exxon made last year, $60 billion. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I forget the name of the project. I have a, a copy of it at home. Uh, Penguin Books uh, printed it. It was a report commissioned by the Carter administration and was only completed in the uh, remaining weeks of that uh, presidency. And when the report arrived on, uh, God, the name of it is just slipping my mind. Uh, when it arrived on Reagan's desk, of course, it got promptly pushed aside, uh, not of interest. But the sort of idea of a Manhattan project for energy, you know, renewable alternative energy sources is not a new idea. It's just an idea that finally is being taken seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seriously was proposed as long ago as 1975, 76. Imagine where we'd be today if that had been taken seriously at that time. Indeed, and of course at the time Carter was ridiculed for, you know, the, the famous sweater. Uh, yeah, turn national, on your thermostats, wear a sweater. His, his famous cardigan uh, fireside <laughs> chat. Uh, you know, I mean, Carter had some blunders uh, in many areas of his presidency. Foreign but, policy particularly. But, uh, but energy policy was one of his strong suits. Indeed. And, of course, uh, we'll just give Ronald Reagan, who's always worthy of brain damage awards, a brain damage award for tearing down the solar panels. If you go to all the expense of erecting the doggone things, 
Why take them down? What harm has been done? Right? My goodness. Uh, even the White House would be a greener facility today. Well, their very existence was an affront to the uh, petrochemical industries. Well, I mean, it's just an outrageous uh, oversight on his part. And one would think, uh, being from Southern California, sunny Southern California, <laughs> that Reagan might have seen some virtue in solar energy. But alas, it's not the case. And it's fascinating to compare uh, the urgent uh, urgency with which uh, European countries are pursuing renewable energy. There are, of course, many ideas out of there, out there, and I would just paraphrase the, the, the delegate from Papua New Guinea. Let the engineers do their thing, and for God's sakes, the politicians need to get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, because this continuing... Just, I don't know, flaccid, I think is a good word to use here, uh, approach that the, uh, that the uh, Congress and the, the current administration have uh, for uh, renewable energy is, well, and is even, uh, frightening. Yeah, recent discussions about trying to encourage the automotive industry uh, to make more uh, energy-efficient vehicles. I sure. Mean, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer. but uh, And they are well, doing it. Slowly but slowly, surely. Slowly, But they're behind the curve. In ah, other words, behind. the Toyotas and uh, Hondas were out there in the, in, in the lead on this uh, many years ago now. And uh, it's taken the big two. Uh, Chrysler, by the way, is, is owned by a uh, private equity firm that, uh, very interestingly, headed up by uh, former Treasury Secretary John Snow, has been reneging on many deals. Uh, this is a fascinating story, by the way. Uh, they don't seem to have the money to pay for a bunch of companies that they uh, promised to buy uh, over the past year or two. So one wonders about their uh, bookkeeping and their financial solvency. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, there was an, kind of an interesting article, and I failed to bring it in. Must have uh, clipped it and blew it. But there was an interesting article in today's New York Times about the Laotian um, Hmong uh, people in Laos that uh, are living in north northwestern Laos near the Thai border that uh, were formerly uh, backed by the CIA during the secret covert war. Mm -hmm. And the article, for the most part, was, was very interesting and got everything correct, except for one important thing. I don't know why they started the date of the secret Laotian War as 1961, other than to mysteriously omit the entire involvement of the CIA in Laos during the 50s while Eisenhower was president and the Dulles brothers were in charge. Yeah. This is where the secret war began. Um, and this is documented, by the way, in the book that I think, for me, was the best book I read this past year called Safe for Democracy, The Secret Wars of the CIA by John Prados, um, published out of Chicago. Uh, he's written extensively on the CIA, and I highly recommend this book. Uh, this, this goes into the real, true history of America's uh, covert operations uh, in so many countries uh, with so much devastation uh, globally and uh, it's 
even you know his section on Laos is is fully documented with uh, you know how Eisenhower and uh, the Dulles brothers basically regarded uh, Laos as a situation where um, they could not permit either neutrality or any sort of communist re- uh, sympathetic uh, type of regime from taking charge. And it's interesting, it says at the time, and I'm quoting from Don, uh, John Prados here, from the book that I just mentioned, Safe for Democracy, The Secret uh, Wars of the CIA. Uh, it's interesting that um, he writes, the American military was excluded from Laos by the 1954 Geneva Accords on Indochina, which allowed only the French to advise the, uh, advise the royal Laotian government so anyway, this is why the whole thing was handed off to the CIA. Uh, needless to say, the movie that we saw this summer, the uh, Werner Herzog movie. Oh, Rescue Dawn, yeah. That was about... Pilots shot down uh, before this war was known about by yeah. uh, the general public or even uh, large segments of the military itself. Yeah, fascinating story about, what's his name? The Dieter Dengler. Dieter Dengler, yeah. It's a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. Uh, film uh, now out on DVD as a narrative story. Uh, of course, it's based on Herzog's own documentary about Dieter Dengler's true story, a German-born lad who came to America and wanted to fly and joined the Air Force and got shipped off to Southeast Asia as a part of the deal and uh, shot down and spent a number of years in one of these uh, secret prison camps. Nobody knew his existence uh, you know, or his capacity or the, uh, the extent of America's involvement. And uh, it was nicely illustrated in the film. Yeah, a real, real worthy of uh, of watching if you if you missed it, because um, I thought it had it. it it's a, just a fascinating story. Of course, you know the the brief focus on the uh, roles of the secret air war in Laos were just touched on briefly. Yeah, but you know, context setting essentially. Context yeah. setting exactly, and uh, one of the interesting things about this New York Times article that, as I say, I regret I didn't bring in, but it's it's the front page story today, was that uh, this reporter apparently had ventured up into the uh, the area in question, and one of the fascinating lines is that he was the first Westerner that these people had seen since 1975. So a very interesting story about that I think, you know, 99%, well, 95% of it was right on the money. But uh, to really leave out the five and a half years of the Eisenhower administration's involvement in Laos is a, a historical revisionism. And it's very important to remember that when Kennedy met with Eisenhower in late 1960 after he'd been elected president, he specifically was told by Eisenhower that uh, Laos was the, the key uh, country in Southeast Asia, not Vietnam. Uh, that this is where he needed to focus his energy. And needless to say, the Kennedy administration uh, was not quite as enthusiastic um, as some of the shenanigans that were going on with uh, the Eisenhower administration. And indeed did reach a brief ceasefire, uh, you know, Geneva agreement back in 1962, but unfortunately that sort of unraveled, and the secret war uh, went ahead for many years 
uh, with hundreds of thousands of civilians killed by um, Agent Orange carpet bombing. Um, really amazing brutality uh, that America was involved in in Indochina. Well, it makes you wonder, too, the extent to which uh, Eisenhower himself was unaware of some of the Dulles brothers' uh, machinations yeah. um, throughout the region. I mean, clearly uh, Eisenhower is a as a military leader, um, fairly right-wing and conservative politically, but I, I think his uh, comments that he made upon exiting the office are uh, probably some of the most chilling comments to come from a president uh, on departing the office since Washington's warning. Sure. Uh, when he uh, stepped down from the, the first official presidency, um, the military-industrial complex, and one wonders you know, when Eisenhower made that realization and yeah. uh, decided to... Sh- if that comment had come from, from anybody else, it would have been scoffed uh, you know, or laughed off the page, but the fact that it came from Eisenhower I find to be quite haunting. Quite haunting, and of course the Dulles brothers ignored uh, Washington's uh, warning about entangling alliances. Indeed. Because that's what the Dulles brother, well, John Foster Dulles, uh, Secretary of State, specialized in. And, um, you know, our justification for our whole involvement in Indochina was part of this CETO treaty that we were always trying to maintain credibility with the rest of the world against the communist, uh, the you know, the international communist conspiracy. I've been reading a book about China that's uh, had some rather amazing NIEs from the 1950s regarding the, uh, from the CIA, uh, back in the news, of course, for recently destroying videotape. And speaking of bombing, by the way, the United States apparently allowed Turkey... We control the airspace of Iraq to uh, go into Iraq and do some surgical bombing here and there. This is, uh, you know, at least the story has been reported, but uh, the aftermath and the results of the bombing probably have not. Um, You know, this gets back to what's really going on in Iraq. Amazing. Whatever's really going on in Iraq, uh, there's a lot of uh, weird information about it floating around. Uh, Of course, the British are uh, pulling troops out substantially. I found this article from last week, uh, Alan Fram's article for the Associated Press in the Ann Arbor News, December 11th, just really bizarre, Um, entitled Survey, More Americans See Progress in Iraq. I don't know if you read this article, but apparently this... uh, telephone survey done with 1,009 adults conducted in early December um, has some fairly remarkable and really hard to believe uh, findings Uh, from the article here. Growing numbers of people think the U.S. is making progress in Iraq and will eventually be able to claim some success there. A poll showed today. While Bush could hardly have commissioned a, a more upbeat lead paragraph than that but I mean look at the tenuous nature of the language growing numbers of people think the US is making progress of course progress is never defined Mm -hmm. and it's you know had a sort of a shifting uh, focus throughout this war Uh, eventually we'll be able to claim some success well I don't know that sounds like damning with faint praise to me Um, 52% to 41% 
uh, say the U.S. is making this progress. And I'm wondering, what are their news sources? You know, are they getting all their information from television? Uh, how well informed are these 1,009 adults? You know, how many of them uh, have, you know, they, they, they quote a few of them. We've got a firefighter from Yuba City, California. And, uh, the, the usual suspects, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, a 51-year-old Democrat uh, from uh, Tennessee who says, we can't stay there forever and babysit. Um, there's been progress, so okay. Um, but this is really uh, strange information. Well, it's strange, and of course, you know, on the periphery, there is some progress. There's been some marginal progress in Baghdad, but the, the you know, is it because of the surge, or is it because of, of you know, a ceasefire called by Maktada al Sadr? Yeah, months ago. And, of course, the debate about the statistics is fascinating. For instance, in the... Um, Clark Hoyt, who's sort of a ombudsman for the New York Times in Sunday's paper, talks about, in this article entitled The Reality in Iraq Depends on Who's Counting, he points out that a total of 1,654 Iraqi civilians were killed last month. This is dated uh, October, so it's talking about September. According to the Times report that quoted an Interior Ministry official, or the total was 1280, according to the British group Iraq Body Count, or 884 Reuters, or 827, the Washington Post quoting the health ministry. Those are huge divergent statistics. And it's very important to remember, you know, as people have pointed out, um, including Paul Krugman, among others, that the American military has got a very, as he puts it, a double super-secret formula for counting sectarian killings, noting that no independent assessment has concluded that violence is down in Iraq. Now, this article was written a couple of months ago, but the point is, clearly, there's been some reduction in the violence in Baghdad. What the heck's going on in the South? The British British have turned this over to Shiite militias, and, um, I mean, who knows? Um, mass graves have been found, you know, continued to be found in, here and there. You know, when were these people killed? Uh, were they killed by Saddam? Were they killed by American bombing back in 1991? Uh, we don't know. Um, so be wary of the statistics um, about Iraq. And progress being made, I think, is uh, sort of like light at the end of the tunnel. Might just be some sort of uh, bizarre flickering reflection uh, and not indicative.